The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk, and in partnership with the Columbus Dispatch Editorial Board, The Other Side is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing racism and its meaning. These episodes will run in conjunction with op-ed columns appearing in the newspaper and on Dispatch.com. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to racism. And joining us on the show today is Aaron Upchurch, the executive director of the Kaleidoscope Youth, and Karen Hewitt, the deputy director of the KYC. Together, they wrote an op-ed column for the dispatch called Celebrating Us, Loving Black, Queer, and Trans Youth. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. Thank you for having us. This is great. Like I said, ladies, welcome so much. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate this conversation, this dialogue, particularly as it relates to celebrating us, Black, queer, and trans youth, the work that you do at Kaleidoscope. And we're excited to know more about the op-ed you world. Like, I was so ecstatic to see you put yourselves out there and these wonderful stories about what it means to celebrate Blackness and queerness, particularly in the time of COVID. What inspired you to write this op-ed? Hmm. You know, I first, I, I just want to share my pronouns, which are she, her, as we move through this. I, um, being a Black person, a queer Black person, a queer Black woman, I'm so clear about the necessity of our stories being told and being shared from a place of visibility and representation, knowing what it was like for me to grow up and not have that. We have to share our stories. That's how we connect with each other. And that's how we, because we're in the business of working with young folks, like they need to be able to see themselves and see what's possible. I think for me, um, the importance of this article as, um, and I'll share my pronouns as well. I use Z here and she, her pronouns and identify as gender fluid and non-gender conforming. And I think what's important about that as we look at identity, intersections and visibility is that sometimes I am the first black queer woman presenting um, using these type of terms person a youth has seen in their lifetime. And I think it's important to be talking about that constantly. Obviously, that's our work and our job. But also, what does that look like to have visibility like loudly and nationally as we start to talk about what the needs are for those youth? Because if those needs are served, then everybody is considered. And I appreciate how you opened up and, and shared too in the, in the, in the piece that um, navigating these systems that you're talking about, such as school, employment, and social how those areas are very political when it comes to the Black body, particularly Black queer bodies. But in your article, you say, for Black youth in the U.S., experiences of racism and discrimination are both common and widespread, which is very shocking to hear when you hear that. Wow. And you name three of them, which are racial biases is prevalent throughout the U.S. education system. And then you go on to say, these biases have contributed to Black youth continuing to face disproportionate rates of school discipline, lower graduation rates, and lower academic achievement, and under-resourced schools that fail to adequately serve Black youth and other youth of color, as well as enhance police presence and surveillance in majority Black schools. 
How do you think, or what do you think this translates to for particularly for Black queer youth on a day-to-day basis who have to face and navigate these systems? And how does your work at Kaleidoscope help them to, to nurture and find space in order to identify and be and feel secure and safe in those spaces? I want to talk to um, the in the school, and then I'm going to pass it off to Aaron to talk about you know what KYC does as a whole to to really circumvent that. So when you look at the education system, I really believe it, it boils down to intersectionality and all those things combined, right? So we talk about cumulative impact when it comes to intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw talks about what is the relationship with history and and the person or and the diversity factors that is present in the person. What's the relationship with people in history around those diversity factors? And when you look at Black youth into Black adults, we already know the history of that, hopefully, or maybe we're learning that, but there's a history from the origin of the United States. And then when you look at the education system and you look at women, Black women, women presenting people, when you are Black girls, when you look at um, Black boys and how a lot of diagnoses around ADHD or those type of things label them early as a threat. And that turns into later in life, the school to prison pipeline. When we look at those things, um, Black girls are disciplined six times more than any other demographic. And when we look at legal cases, when they went in there, they couldn't just say it was a Black thing. You know, it was like, oh, it's a Black girl thing. And so then you add on top of that, it's a Black queer or it's a Black girl and trans. Like, what do you, wouldn't you add those things? There's cumulative impact that for me, like to say it's common, of course it's common. That's what happens in school and the school system mirrors the world that we live in and grow up to learn to live in. So those are the ways that I believe that the education system and how cumulative impact affects our youth specifically that are Black, queer, or trans. Aaron? Oh, man. Thank you. I'm sitting here sitting with that, you know, even as an adult in my 40s, I'm still learning to integrate all of my parts and my identities. And, and I'm so I'm just kind of filling into that. We know that our system was built on racism, white supremacy. And so I, you know, I'm a parent. I have a 18-year-old son who will be 19, just freshman year in college. I have a 17-year-old daughter who's a junior in high school. And so when we talk about black students navigating through the school system, um, the prison to the school to prison pipeline, some different things, everything Karen said about how it impacts our young people, like I've seen my son in particular have to navigate. And so when we think about identities, right, like black first, question mark, period, exclamation point, I'm not sure. But what we know is when I, what I know is when I walk into a room, they see black. That's that's first. And so for other, you know, folks in the world, their biases and whatever else follows, like those are things that get kicked up when they see black and brown skin. And, you know, when I think about kaleidoscope, what is important to us and what is like the foundation of our work is to provide space and sustain space where our young folks get to be whole. So when they walk into our doors, they are themselves whomever, whatever they are bringing in that day, not only do we work to see them, we also provide the space for them to define themselves for themselves. Over and over again, daily in our check-ins, as we're building community, we use our names, we use our pronouns. Um, You know, we talk about things that are going on in our own worlds. And, you know, 
we have some young people who played around with different names, finding names that affirmed who they were. And so that meant every day we got to check in with them. And it wasn't in a like, oh, what's your name today? It was, hi, tell me your name today. You know, and so it's it's this space of belonging and an affirmation to where they're seen as their whole selves. They're invited to show up as their whole selves and they're invited to even set down that armor just a little bit in a way that feels safe for the three and a half hours or forever amount of time they're spending with us, because that's the culture and environment that we are cultivating. I'm just curious. And this question is to both of you all. What do you think the biggest challenge is or what the bigger challenge is? Is it more challenging for the young people that you work with to be black or to be queer? And I know that might be a hard question, but that's a good question. I think I'll take a stab at it. Um, I think I think what we are aware of is that none of those stand alone. Right. And so no one is a monolith. And I think what's important to realize is not that one is one first. I think we I have grown up in a in a space where I was black first. And that was the thing that I focused on. And that's a thing that still is present. And I also believe, and Aaron actually gave me this quote that, you know, race is the prism through which all other isms are cast, right? So when you look at all those things, I think that race is the first thing that we have to deal with. And consequently, to survive, you know, in my home or however that looked, I needed to know what it was like to be navigating my life as a Black person, period. But I also believe that as, you know, identities intersect and the world is shifting a bit in, in many ways and many positive ways. I also think that the presence of like racism is here. The presence of, you know, homophobia is here. The presence of transphobia is here because what is happening in the shift towards in inclusion and equity is that people are showing who they are. And they really don't have an option to sit in the middle anymore. And so when you think about the cumulative impact of that, that means that now people don't just, I mean, I'm not going to say get, but now people don't just get the opportunity to deal with their blackness. They also have to deal with every layer of their identity, especially if it's visible, right? So now people are, now that there's awareness, we're talking about ageism. We're talking about ableism. We're talking about all those other neurodiversity. We're talking about all those other topics. And yes, they are layered and yes, there is nuance within them. But I think the difficulty with being black and queer is A, do you get acceptance in your own home? And then B, in the world, you're already a threat or you're already fetishized or you're already these things. How does that look to show up and really own or even begin to explore your identity and feel safe enough to do so? So I think it's layered. But that's a great question. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, I my answer is it depends. I think, you know, as a here's the thing for queer folks is we're born black. I would say we are born queer because I believe it's who we are and that awareness and connection to it typically isn't something that we are able to articulate or know innately right away. And so the world doesn't see that. Right. And so I think when we, so let me use my example for myself, by the time I was able to, I was aware of my queerness and connected to it and living in it. I already experienced the world as a black person, as a black woman, I already had that container. And so, you know, being queer, being visibly queer, being outwardly queer gets layered. And to Karen's point around like within black families, what does that look like? A lot of us came up in the black church. So there's story there. And then I think we have to look at 
And, and well, and in some places, our queerness can be more celebrated and supported than our blackness, depending on the community that we are around and in. And then you have to look at gender and gender presentation and expression. And what when you asked your question, the first image that came to me was um, one of our young people um, assigned male at birth, and mm-hmm. it's so fabulous, so so fabulous. Wears stilettos, you know, embodies Beyonce, likes to be, you know, all these things that society would call effeminate. And so mm-hmm. then we can go to how gender is presented. And I can say I'm probably safer as a black queer woman in a space where he might show up presenting in his gender identity. Like we know that violence is, is more likely to come upon him and that in a community than it might be for me. And so I think it's just layered. It depends. There's it's nuanced um, because we also know that black trans women are being murdered at high rates as well. And so it's which is which I think speaks to the experience of like, where do I get to be safe as a queer black person? Where do I know that my life matters and that it can be held sacred? We don't know. And so then there's the anxiety and the mental health implications of that as well. I think that brings it to a wonderful point around celebration of black queer identities and black bodies, mm-hmm. like showing up um, and what Kaleidoscope does and what you are doing. I think this is brilliant how you're nuancing Blackness as well as queer identity. And then you brought up the church, which is another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I want to just quickly, like, I'm one of those weird black girls, right? So then we've got black, like you said, blackness. There's layers and levels to that as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, but even Karen nuanced that, which about sexuality, because she's like, mm-hmm. you're not gender conforming and non gender identifying. It's like, wait, wait, whoa, what? what? Where do I place that? Like, what are you saying? Uh-huh. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think we really need to get into those conversations around how we explore blackness, how we explore mm-hmm. sexuality and the spectrum that it is on this wide ranging of identities that, that exist and how we celebrate all of that. So I want to know what you all are doing to help celebrate that for, you know, young people in COVID, you know, who are probably stuck at home and like, oh, my God, I really am exploring these identities. I really want to express how I can be my fullness but my family is limiting my full expression. So what, what, what positive or messaging that we can provide for young people during this time? I have a couple of things. And like for me, um, for me, it's very important to start within. Right. And so I'm constantly showing up. I, too, am a Leo. And it's OK for me to be present. I'm, I'm not craving any of that, but I happen to be that. And I also happen to be um, very nuanced in my identity. So I'm fine with being present. So what that means for me is that I also need to be an example and not just a carrier of words about how people should live their lives. So for me right now, I'm on sabbatical. I'm doing the things that I want to do, conversations that are generative. I just finished my second book. I am on a panel tonight about Blackness, religion, sexuality, um, you know, and being present and really just being aware. I also, you know, got a text from one of our youth about a care package and wanting to make sure that they wanted to wait until I got back to deliver it to them. So when I think about the ways we celebrate, it's really about living your life in a way that invites thriving, invites joy, invites abundance so that people can see what that looks like Mm -hmm. and not feel like it's taboo to want that for themselves. And so I've, you know, I've had many conversations with people like, oh, you rich and famous. Like, no, the point is to have money to distribute it and give it and, and live in a way that, that resources as many people as possible. That's the currency. So I'll speak in the currency, right? It's not about that. It's about what does community building look like? 
What does it look like to normalize things like sabbatical? What does it look like to normalize things like, um, you know, thriving, like creativity as well as work to have harmony as opposed to balance where balance seems like it's a lot of work, but harmony is beautiful. Right. So what does it look like to have all of those things and start with myself? and allow that for myself. A lot of times I get stuck in not allowing myself to have those things because it's not common. And I feel bad and you get this survivor's guilt from, you know, other people who are struggling, but like, I'm also in the work. So I'm trying to regulate that and do my part to make an impact. So there's this whole conversation internally around what is allowing thriving and um, success and joy and abundance look like? And then what does that mean to translate that and normalize that in the conversation with other youth as they come up? I love that. Like living out loud, right. Um, and being visible and, you know, as an organization, we are extremely intentional around our values and, 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 you know, the lens and the framework through which our work is being offered. And, um, we sit in a place of racial justice and anti-oppression and trauma-informed and healing-centered and um, the intersectionality. And so we sit in that place and that's the place through which our work is, is being offered. And so what that means on the inside internally as an organization is like we need to make sure we're able to create that space for our young people. Um, I mentioned, you know, we mentioned in the article that, you know, in 2018, uh, I was the first black executive director for the organization of we're in our 27th year and of LGBTQ orgs here in Columbus, the first one. And, and then Karen joined our team later in the year. So then we're the first black executive leadership team for an LGBTQ organization in Columbus. And that is to be celebrated. And I think that's how we also get to celebrate our young people because they get to see themselves. And I remember a story. It was like my first year there and I was sitting in my office one day and we, you know, we, we support our youth as leaders. And one of our young people was showing a tour, given a tour to new youth visiting and they were standing outside my door. They didn't know I was in there. And I remember them saying, Oh, her that in there, she's the boss. She's a boss. She has a tattoo, a lesbian battle axe, what she said. It's elaborate. Um, and she said, and she looks like us. And so I peeked out my door to see who was out there. And it was a group of four or five queer black young people. And we made eye contact. And there was this moment of connection and celebration. And it was almost like them being like, oh, if she can be here, I can be here too. And that's when we get into representative leadership and, and, and being visible for those of us for whom it's safe. And we get to celebrate our black young folks just by being present. It's important to me when we are in person to walk through the drop-ins and during programming just so they can see me and I can see them. You know, our numbers have gone up significantly from 2018. We're around 30% black youth and now we're at 49% black youth indigenous people of color, but, you know, mostly black youth. And so that's increased over the last couple of years, which one tells me that the need remains there and it may be even more acute than before. And two, there's something about the work that we're doing in the space we're offering to where the young folks can come in and not be just be affirmed. Like they're not just welcomed. They're not tolerated. They're affirmed and they belong because that's their space. And then in that, they are also celebrated. And so that's through that's that's something that's more of a felt sense. I think, yes, we have specific program and we've got an affinity group for queer youth of color, which is led by our young people. Our team is 50 percent Karen or 51 percent 
folks of color. 62% actually. Math major here. Yes. 62% of our team are, are people of color. That's, that's big. And I, and it's intentional. And in the fact that our team, our white coworkers demand that diversity. They demand that they command it. They want that there. And so that's our community and our culture. And I think that's, you know, that means we can lead out loud. We can use our voices around uh, Black Lives Mattering. We can, you know, stand for racial justice. We can talk about these things because we also live them. So, Karen, you mentioned betasization of um, of queer black men. And I'm so glad you did because I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. Um, and this is open to to both of you. So, so much of white gay male culture, and for that matter, uh, female gay culture originates from, let's just be honest, black women and black, black gay men. So can you guys explain the dynamic between white LGBTQIA plus culture, which relies so heavily on black influence and the persistent persistence of racism um, that exists outside of that relationship. So in other words, can you help me understand how on one hand, um, black gay culture is so, um, so critical, uh, and such a major component of, of the overall white gay culture. And yet at the same time, you still have racist behavior towards the very community that, um, that is 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 being looked to um, for culture and inspiration and all of the other great and wonderful things that that black queers um, bring to the country. I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but basically, can you just explain to me what what are your thoughts on that and how racism and and all of that sort of plays into it? I'll also take this one first because I can't wait for what Aaron's going to say after what I say. So. Um, the first thing is, Aaron and I were just talking about this uh, this morning, actually, about the fetishization. Fetish, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I could spell it, but I can't really say it. Fetishization <laughs> of black girls and women, and that that diatribe goes like that goes back to you know the origins of slavery and concepts of women, like experiments on women in terms of gynecology and looking at that. And so then, when you have gayness, as people explore those identities, of course. A black man that is beautiful and strong and portrays and identifies as a woman, of course, that's going to be fetishized as well. Fetishized as well. So when you look at those things like that, makes sense actually that those that it's fetishized based on the black woman original concept or the black girl original concept of fetish and um, how black girls and women have been treated since their arrival here. And also, I mean, if you look back to down back through the African diaspora, like women and patriarchy, you know, has been present and women have not always been treated well or with respect or with dignity or as if they're human beings or they can feel right. They've often been treated as sexual beings. So when you look at how that translates, what I think the most important point of this question is, is that racism is so socialized that people can operate from a lens of marginality and ignore the depth of their socialization in terms of racism. So all they'll see is their margin. And so when you're looking in like community in the community, especially in uh, central Ohio, when we look at LGBTQ plus ness, and especially in the in the white gay community, 
money is is pretty prevalent when you think of white gay men because did they get the pass you know like what does that look like in terms of their privilege and their opportunities when you look at money what i what i understand in most cases anywhere when we're talking about race is that people are invested to the point of their own personal financial commitment so when it starts to hit your pocketbook that's when hold on let's go about this respectfully Let's make sure we do all the things in protest respectfully. Let's make sure we go about this the right way. And so what does that mean? That means that racism is still front and forward. That means that patriarchy is still front and forward. And I'm marginalized. So now it's like me too on the oppression Olympic side, right? But at the end of the day, it has that experience is valid. It is allowed, right? But it also does not do or earmark anything in comparison to a black experience that already from the jump starting off is years behind in terms of opportunities, access and resources, as well as um, visibility representation. So like when you think about all those things at the end of the day, at the if we address racism, we address everything, but people will get caught in their privilege and their own margins and their binders around those things that and then it's also work. It's a lot of work to go into. Like, let me just examine my de- deep socialization in race every day as a white gay person. Like, I'm already gay. I'm already different. I'm already weird. So let me just, like, explore that and sit in that and deal with that. But the the true thing is, is as a black person, I don't get to turn that off. You know, I don't have the privilege to turn that off. And so I think that's how it plays out. But I'm going to people are always like, how should we address this problem? Like, what should we really address? And, I, and every answer is going to be like racism for me. I don't know that I have an answer to that fully. And I've been actually, I'm thinking about the word celebrate. And so I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to that and it might connect here. You know, something that we did not say out loud around how we celebrate blackness and black queerness is, and and Karen, you made me think about this, just talking about, you know, when we talk about black people, black youth, black queer folks, we always talk about from a place of deficit what's not happening, what they're not getting, how we're the oppression, the impact, which is so important because it's our reality. But rarely do we celebrate, right? And so I was thinking, how do we celebrate? And so we do things that lift our young people up and lift up their voices and we can celebrate them being fabulous. We can celebrate um, their achievements. We celebrate, you know, their leadership. And so I just wanted to note that part is like not always coming from a, de- a deficit, which is a challenge in an or- running an organization because we want people to give us money and support, right? And so we have to talk about why we're necessary and, and we talk about risk and all that, but when we can talk about placing our young people or people at promise. That's a different spin because that means we are celebrating their life and their gifts and, and their dignity and their humanity. And that's, that's a framework through which another one through which we do our work. And so, yeah. And so I'm sitting with the fetishization. Wow. Also struggling with that word. Um, Is it celebrating? Is it a celebration or is it a fetish, right? Is it honoring and being accepting and inclusive or is it a fetish? And I, I, Oh man. Aaron, when you're saying that, I'm like, okay, so how do I know? Like what other questions can I ask about like that we know and we talk about when we talk about fetish versus celebration? And to me, if it's a fetish, then at some point somebody will have a barrier against standing in front of that. I have friends right now that celebrate me and love me deeply and they would hold the line and take bullets for me. Nothing would stop them from celebrate some celebrating me. I, thankfully, they don't have to you know, make that decision daily. But at some point with the fetishization, if it's going to affect my life 
in a certain way, that's when I stop. And to me, that's when it's fetishizing. It's right. But can they stop. also talk about and be honest and clear about their racism, their in their internal racism and the way that shows up and how um, can they talk about that too? Right. Or can they no. understand? Right. Or, or can they understand if you're saying like, you can't really support me here. I need a black person. And they're like, well, I can support you. I love you. Like when we break it down to that. What, what is that? That is a whole nother podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Note. <laughs> right. It's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we can go on and on and on talking more about it because, because there is so much complexity around, you know, like I said, black, blackness and sexuality and gender and the beauty of who we are and how we celebrate ourselves, um, how we are fetishized in society, uh, policed, our bodies are policed, our races policed in various different spaces. So um, I want to thank you, ladies, and, and non-gender performing, Karen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> y'all folks, I'm from Cincinnati, so y'all you can y'all me any day. Yeah, yeah, y'all right. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been a lively conversation. I absolutely really appreciate you being here and sharing so much of the work you do, but being brave and bold and courageous in your identities and what that means for young people. And I hope that they all tune in to hear this, especially our Greater Columbus area, um, get to hear this as well, because so many people are struggling and you need to make sure that they have space and availability to be themselves and to, and to um, celebrate in their fetishization of who they are. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you mentioned maybe our youth listening, like what I want them to hear, if nothing else, is that we love you. We love you deeply. You belong here. You belong here. And your life is sacred. Not only does it matter, but it is sacred. And we hold that. I would add that your gift is necessary. And it can feel like a curse at times, but your gift is necessary and stay with it. Once again, we just want to thank you both for coming on today. I think it's an amazing conversation. I think our listeners will hopefully um, learn something from it and gain some insight. And for everybody else out there, be sure to check out the full column by our guest. And you can find that on Dispatch.com and in print. And also be sure to check back regularly for the next installment in the In Black and White podcast series. So until the next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. <laughs>